Uh, we're in the book of Matthew, and we're making our way through this gospel. And uh, so today we're going we're gonna to kind of jump right in. If you've been with us, then we have kind of gone through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And now we're coming to the end of chapter 4. And Matthew has been introducing Jesus Christ to us. There are four gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Each of them are written from a, a different author with unique perspective on presenting Jesus to us. Matthew wants us to know Jesus is king. Everything about Matthew is Jesus has come as the king. And so today, we're, we're coming into a new section. We've ended, in a sense, the introduction of Matthew. And now in the second half of chapter 4, verse 12, in that section, we're now starting the ministry of Jesus. The public ministry has begun, and today is, is like a preview or, or like a movie trailer for the rest of the life of Jesus. If you all know, you watch a movie trailer, and it, it gives you like bits and pieces of what's going to happen. It's there to entice you and to say, hey, you should come see this. And in a sense, our passage today, Matthew points out some things about who Jesus is, the effect that he has, and he's in a sense saying, come watch all of this. Come read the rest of the book of Matthew. You need to know who Jesus Christ is. And so with that, I'm going to invite you to stand. Uh, we stand each week as we read the text that we preach from. We do this because uh, God's word is a gift to us from God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It comes with the full authority of God for the pr purpose of correcting us, teaching us, training us, and equipping us that we would live godly lives. And so I'm going to read Matthew chapter 4 uh, from verses 12 through 25. Now when he heard, this is Jesus, now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his, feb, his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for today. And God, I, I, I praise you for this morning as we have just had the opportunity to praise you in song, 
to, to come alongside families who have had young children and pray for them and, and trust that, God, you uh, will give grace as these parents raise their children, that, that their children would know you would love you, would trust in you. Lord, I thank you for options coming, and Christina being here and just talking about the need to proclaim life to, to those who are hurting, to those who are wrestling with, with abortion. And Lord, we pray for that ministry to grow. And Lord, as we now come into your word, your word which so clearly speaks to us about who Jesus Christ is, what he has come to do, the hope that we have, the gospel that we proclaim, God, may we be filled with joy today. May our hearts be filled with excitement and zeal as we behold Jesus, our King, the righteous one who's came to rescue us from the darkness. May, may we see who he is. May we understand what it means to follow him, to love him. And may we see that there is no darkness that can overcome Jesus Christ, our righteous King. Father, we love you. Give us wisdom today as we study your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. Go ahead and be seated. So we're going to just walk our way through this text. Um, first thing we just need to see is, is Jesus is beginning his public ministry, and Matthew wants us to know Jesus is a different kind of king. Everything about Jesus is in stark contrast to any other type of leader. Verse 12 begins, and we read that John the Baptist has now been arrested by Herod. He's been imprisoned. Upon hearing this, Jesus relocates from Nazareth, and he moves over to the Sea of Galilee to a town called Capernaum, where he'll set up his headquarters. Now, Capernaum is at the, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, and it's part of the most northern territory of Israel. Now, there's a lot of people who, who have questions, so, so why does Jesus move here? What is happening? What's, what's his agenda here? But Matthew doesn't leave us to ask those questions. He answers it for us. And in verse 14, he tells us, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What he wants us to know is Jesus isn't moving around in any random or chaotic way. Jesus is on a mission. And if you remember two weeks ago when we looked at the baptism of Jesus, the reason Jesus was baptized, we read in chapter 3, was to fulfill all righteousness, was to do everything that the Father has called him to do. And so now as, as he begins his public ministry and he moves from this location to this location, he does it to fulfill all righteousness. He does it to fulfill scripture, perfectly obeying God in everything that he does. Every word and every action that Jesus does is in perfect obedience to God. And so Matthew wants us to know that Jesus goes to Galilee to fulfill scripture, particularly Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, which is, which is when, what he quotes. This means he's here on a specific purpose. Um, to understand that, let me just give a little background. Whenever a New Testament author quotes the Old Testament, he wants us to go, what was that context back there? Because there's something about that Old Testament story that's now being fulfilled in the New Testament. And so if we were to go back to Isaiah 9 and even Isaiah 8, we would be reminded of what Israel was doing in around the 8th century. Around the 8th century, Israel was in complete rebellion towards God. 
They were not obeying God. They were not trusting God. They weren't praying towards God. They were actually looking to, towards mediums and sorcerers and practicing witchcraft to know what decisions they should make. In every way, they were rebelling against God. And so God is going to send Assyria to Israel as a means of punishing them for their absolute rebellion against him. So Assyria is going to come into Israel from the north, from Zebulun and Naphtali, northern tribes. Those tr tribes will be the very first ones that, he over that Assyria will defeat and will begin to take into exile. And so Gentiles will begin moving into this area and living there for the next several hundred years. In 104 BC, um, this area will forcibly be returned back to Israel, but it will still be um, inhabited by Jews and by Gentiles, and it is, uh, various religions are practiced in this area. It is far, about as far away from uh, Jerusalem and the temple that you can get. It is a very spiritually dark place. In fact, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, which comes right before what we what is quoted in chapter 9, which Matthew quotes, uh, Isaiah uses these words to describe the land and the people. He says, um, he used the word distress, darkness, gloom, anguish, and thick darkness. Now, you might say, well, what does those mean? Well, if you were like, go to Proverbs, Proverbs is very clear that darkness refers to disobedience and rebellion towards God, which is how Isaiah is using it, which is how Matthew is using it. The point of this darkness in this area is that no one seeks God. No one loves God. No one is looking towards God. No one's trusting God. No one's uh, praying towards him. It's a spiritually dark area where uh, false religions are thriving. In modern terms, think Vietnam, India, North Korea, China. These are spiritually dark places. Resist Christianity and practice many, many different cults. That's this area where now Jesus has moved into. And so Matthew will then say in, in chapter 4, verse 16, quoting Isaiah 9 to, this is a place of, of darkness, void of all hope. And this is where Jesus goes. What might be considered the most spiritually dark area in the region. And it says they see a great light. So think, think sunrise. You ever like looking looking east, I remember which way the sunrise is, and you begin to see the glow, and then the glow gets bigger and brighter and brighter and brighter, and then if you ever watch it, you can actually like see the light crawl across the ground as it stretches forward, pushing back the darkness. That's the imagery that Matthew gives us here. A light has dawned in this area, and it's beginning to stretch across the land, pushing back the darkness, which then would make us go, well, what is this light? What's the light Isaiah is talking about? What's the light Matthew is talking about? What are we supposed to understand here? And so let me read just a little bit more from Isaiah 9. And regardless of if you've been in church much or not, you probably have heard this passage. It's read a lot during Christmas. We read it during Christmas just last month. So Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is coming right after what he quotes. It's in the same context. This is what Matthew, or what Matthew wants us to know from Isaiah. 
says this in Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, so who, is right, who is Isaiah writing about? Who is Matthew writing about? Who is this great light? Who is this son that has been born that pushes back the darkness? It's Jesus. It's the one Matthew has been writing about. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. Jesus comes as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He's the one who's come to establish the kingdom of heaven, which is why in chapter 4, I think it's what, verse 17, repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Isaiah says the son has come to establish the eternal righteous kingdom of God. Matthew now says Jesus comes, and what are his first public words in ministry? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has come to earth that he would overcome sinful, rebellious, dark kingdoms, and he would establish the perfect kingdom of heaven. Matthew wants to know, this king is different from every other king. Don't look to Herod. Don't look to Caesar. Don't look to Nero. Don't look to any other worldly leader to understand this king. He's not a dictator. He's not a politician with hidden agendas concerned about public approval ratings. Not that we would know anything about that. But rather, he's the light of the world. This means he is perfect in every way. He has no spot. He has no blemish. His clothing is bright, blazing white garments that cannot be stained. He's come to free us from the bonds of sin so we could have hope and joy and peace and everlasting life with him. Do you remember remember when you were a child and it's night time and your parents tell you go to bed? You go to your room, and you turn off your light, and then you have to get to your bed. Do you remember what you did? You, like, run and jump because your feet can't get close to the edge of the bed, right? Why? Because it's dark. Because it's dark down there. And, and darkness makes us uneasy. Darkness is scary. Monsters dwell in the dark. But did you notice, same room, same bed, when the lights are on, you had no problem being anywhere in your room. You could walk anywhere. There's no need to run and jump over things. You could could walk everywhere. Light brings peace and joy. This is what Matthew wants us to see. Spiritually dark area, and that area represents the entire world. It's a spiritually dark world. And Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the light who's come to push back the darkness. In him there's no sin, there's no evil, there's no darkness, but only hope, joy, peace, and freedom. This is the king who has come. Different from every other king, every other leader, every other ruler. And in verse 17, Jesus speaks for the first time, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
We'll talk about repentance a little bit more later. But for now, just realize Jesus is the righteous king who overcomes the darkness and invites us into the light. Amen indeed, right? He's come on a rescue mission to bring us from darkness into the light. And so we might say, well, well, how do we respond? What do we do? So in verses 18 through 22, Jesus is going to come up to some fishermen. Two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, and then James and John. And basically the same thing happens. He walks up to them and says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So what do they do? We're told immediately they left their nets, they left their boat, they left their father, and they follow Jesus. Now, this is actually not the first time these, God, these guys met Jesus. If you were to go to the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of John, there's more details that are in, in this backstory. So they know who Jesus is. He didn't just walk on the stage, and this isn't just blind, irrational faith. So they, they know who he is. But Matthew doesn't include any of those details because Matthew emphasizes the authority of the king. He just wants to see. When the king speaks, what do we do? We respond because the king is worthy of all devotion. And that's the next point he wants us to know. Jesus is worthy of all devotion. He has absolute power. He's the king. He is light. And so you might say, so what does it mean that Jesus is worthy of all of our devotion? So how, how do we live in response to that? What does it mean to give him all of our devotion? Well, number one, it would mean we would respond to him in radical obedience. And, and that's exactly what these guys do. That's what Matthew wants us to see. Peter, Andrew, I'm forgetting these guys. Peter, Andrew, James, John, just walk away from everything, and they follow Jesus. Jesus isn't looking for, for partial commitment. It's, it's all or nothing. One commentary, it, it was helpful, and I, and I liked what it said. It was critiquing a little bit of Sometimes the way we approach Jesus, and it said sometimes we come to Jesus like they gave an Old Testament tithe, and you just give 10%. And that was just really helpful, just that kind of imagery there. I'll give him 10%. I'll come to church on Sunday, and then the other six days I get to do what I want. Or I give Jesus two hours on Sunday, then the other however many hours during a week, we get to do kind of what we want. And sometimes if we're not careful, we, we slip into that. But Jesus doesn't require 10% of us. He requires 100%. He's come to save all of us, that all of us would live for him. Throughout Matthew, Jesus gives many disciples, or, or gives many commands to the disciples. Things like, and we'll get to these next week. And the week after, we, we're to love our enemies, we're to be truthful, we're to not be angry, we're to not be anxious, we're to spend time in prayer, we're to love him more than money, we're to forgive 70 times 7. Remember when Peter's talking about, how many times do I forgive? And these commands are not optional. Jesus doesn't set out this buffet and say, you know, you, you choose what's good for you, and you come into my kingdom on your terms. Rather, he says, this is my kingdom and I'm rescuing you, rescuing you from the kingdom of darkness, and you will enter on my terms and live according to my terms because I'm the king who's worthy of all glory and honor and praise, and I will perfectly care for you. 
And so we're to come to him in radical obedience. Now there's a passage that Matthew will use later in his gospel that highlights what some would say this radical obedience that Jesus requires. Now this is a passage that's easily misunderstood. But if we read it with a little bit of discernment, it's quite easy to understand what the meaning is also. So let me just read. Matthew 10, verses 34 to 39. Matthew, or Jesus says, Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So some people are like, wait a minute. Why would I follow someone who wants me to be at war with my family? Why would I follow someone who wants me to love him more than my family? Why would I follow someone who wants me to love him more than I love my own self? Now, Jesus is not calling us to hate our family. But what he wants us to know that he is to be preeminent, supreme in all of our life. If you think about this, neither your kids or your spouse can rescue you from your sins and the judgment that you and I deserve. And only Jesus can. And you can love your family, but if you don't tell them about Jesus, if you're not training your children to know who Christ is, then while you're doing good things for them in one sense, you're not doing what's best for them. You're not giving them the news that they must know, understand, and believe if they're to have everlasting life. What Jesus wants us to know is only by trusting in him and radically obeying him in all of life will we rightly love ourselves and love our family and love others. We must first come and follow him and love him, and then only then will we be equipped to truly know how to love others. So I want to, especially as we had parents all up here tonight, I want to just encourage you, parents, teach your children Jesus is preeminent in everything, supreme in all that we do. Teach them that Jesus is our ultimate authority. Teach them that Jesus is worthy of all of our obedience all the time. There's many, many ways that you do this. Do this by intentionally spending time with them as a family, reading the Bible, being in prayer together. Do this by being involved and committed to the church. Do this by the giving of your finances to the church. Your children ought to know that your budget and calendar are affected by your love for Christ. The children ought to be able to see that. We don't do all the things that sometimes we, in a sense, want to do because our commitment to Christ prioritizes our time, our finances, and our resources. And this isn't begrudging obedience. We're not sitting there going, man, we could do far more things if we didn't actually give our offering to Christ. We'd have far more time to do the things that we wanted if we didn't have to go spend time in church each Sunday and do all these other things. Like Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they're not begrudgingly following Jesus. They're not going, I really wish I could stay in my boat. They're joyfully leaving it, following Christ. So think of it this way. Imagine the person you admire most in this world. So, sports athlete, a pastor, 
Hint. I'm just saying, whatever, you know, just throwing that out there. And they call you and say, I want to spend all day with you tomorrow. Just out of the blue, somehow they got your number. They call you, and they're like, hey, tomorrow I've cleared my schedule, you and me. This is the person you admire most in the world. What are you going to do? You clear your schedule, right? You clear your schedule. You're not sitting around, well, I mean, I was, I was going to clean the kitchen tomorrow. I had some chores I was going to do and some errands. I mean, I, when am I going to get to those now? And Okay, fine, we can hang out, but i got to be home by 3 because i got stuff to do. Well, you clear your schedule. You're thrilled with the fact that this person has chosen to spend all day with you. Now, now think about it. How much more do we joyfully reorient our lives around Jesus, the light of the world, the king of God's kingdom who has come to rescue us from our sins? We leave everything. He's worthy of all of our devotion, of every word, of every action that we're able to do is to be done for him because he's king and he's good and he's righteous and he's perfect and he loves us. So the first thing we do to live a life worthy of Christ is we radically obey him. Secondly, we we radically tell others about him. Notice that he calls these people with a purpose. He says, I will make you fishers of men. And what's interesting is if you go to chapter 5, in chapter 4, Jesus is called the light of the world, right? And in John 8, 12, he'll say Jesus is the light of the world. And then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus, speaking to the church, speaking to those who follow him, says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So he's the light of the world, and when we follow him, we become the light of the world also because he dwells within us and we are thus called to tell others about Christ in fact Matthew ends the gospel by quoting the great commission when Jesus commands in Matthew 28 go therefore into all the world making disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and behold I am with you always to the end of the age here the beginning of Jesus public ministry first words he says in public I make you fishers of men And you might say, well, that was just for those four guys. At the end of the gospel, to the entire world, go now, all my disciples, and preach the gospel. Now, you might then say, was that just for those guys? Peter will say the same thing. Listen to what he says. Chapter 1, verse 2, 9 of Peter. He will say, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. He's just wanting us to know, you the church? the special people of God and he says you are all these things that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light Peter remembers this moment the light breaks into the darkness Jesus calls us and calls us to now be light into the world so now in his letter writing to the churches filled with Jews and Gentiles he says God saves you that you'd be a chosen people a holy nation for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of Christ in a dark world you are the light of the world every Christian is called to proclaim the good news of Jesus you are called to proclaim the good news of Jesus. It doesn't matter whether you have the gift of evangelism or not. You are called to proclaim 
the good news of Jesus Christ. You'll do that through words. You'll do that through actions. It'll be a combination of both those in everything that you do. Do not look toward your inadequacies to give you an excuse on why you can be disobedient to Jesus. Rather, look to the king who lavishes his grace and power upon you so you can obey. Does that make sense? And we're often like, Oof, I don't know if I can do this. Because we're, we're looking at ourselves and going, but man, I'm, I'm not that good. I'm not that strong. I'm not that eloquent. Which is kind of like what all the prophets in the Old Testament said. And God would come to them and Jesus would come to them and says, have I not made your tongue? Have I not formed you? Have I not placed my spirit in you, empowered you, and strengthened you, and promised you the infinite riches of God to be working in you and towards you and for you so you would be able to obey all my commands? Remember this. Every command God gives you, he also gives you the grace to fulfill that command. Do not forget that. So don't sit here and go, I don't have the gift of evangelism. It doesn't matter. We're not all Michael D'Angelo. He's a great evangelist, man. He just loves, he just has this gift. No matter who you are, just walks up to people, shares the gospel. But we're all going to do it in one way or in another. You have the grace of God working in you that you would be able to obey. Do not forget that. I think sometimes we wrestle through, and, and maybe our fear is in ourselves, and maybe our fear is, but how are they going to respond? And, and maybe what we're actually questioning is, how bright is this light in this dark world? Like, how effective is this light? How strong is this light? Is there darkness in this world that can overcome the light? Now think about that. Why don't we sometimes speak about Christ? We're believing something there. But Matthew wants us to know that Jesus overcomes all darkness. That's our final point. Jesus overcomes all darkness. In fact, in, in verse 23, Matthew gives us the snap, this snapshot of Jesus' ministry. And he says, look, Jesus did three things. He preached, he taught, and he healed. Now, just so you know, preaching is, is this public proclamation of God's word in a persuasive way that people would believe in him. Teaching is more uh, information, in a sense, appealing to the mind. Um, and so he's doing preaching, he's doing teaching, and he's doing healing. And Matthew wants us to know that as Jesus does these things, light moves into this world and the darkness cannot restrain it and so i just want to show two ways that matthew shows us that the darkness cannot overcome the light two ways number one healing look at verse 23 we're told that people with every disease and every affliction come to jesus and then in verse 24 we're just given this list of of things that jesus heals Anyone who's sick, anyone with disease or pain, those oppressed by demons, those who have seizures, paralytics, those who are healed, everyone who comes to Jesus, what happens? Healed. And if we make our way through the book of Matthew, we see that Jesus makes the blind see. He heals those with leprosy. He even raises the dead. There's no darkness that comes before Jesus that Jesus goes, I, I can't overcome this. What we understand is that Jesus has great compassion and he has great power. That's important. He's not sitting here going, I, I really want to take care of you. I really want to offer you hope. 
I really want just to give you a, a hand of encouragement, but I can't. I'm just not strong enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not powerful enough. That's not what we see at all. Rather, we have this king who's compassionate, loves people, and his power matches his compassion. So when he sees people, he heals people. There's nothing that comes his way that he's unable to heal. And just think about what we're seeing here. The implication of this. The righteous king, the light of the world, enters into the darkness and he's undoing the effects of sin. Darkness pushing back. Sin cannot exist in the kingdom of heaven. We're getting a preview of that. Now here in this world, we know the kingdom of God has not fully come in yet. It's broken in through the coming of Jesus and the preaching of his word and through the church that is here. But the fullness of the kingdom won't come in until Jesus returns to gather his people all for this final time. But what we understand is in that day, there will be no sin at all. And so we're getting a preview here in Jesus' ministry of what the kingdom looks like in his fullness. And we're getting an understanding of what we are to do in our own lives, that we are to, as we preach and we teach and we do acts of mercy, we're also, in a sense, pushing back the darkness and we're giving the world a glimpse of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. So by our interactions here on a Sunday, the way we love each other, the fact that we persevere with each other and that we don't just gather with each other because we share the same hobby like golf, but we love one another and we have all these diverse backgrounds and all these diverse hobbies and all these things. But what holds us together and what unites us as a family that wants to love one another and encourage one another is the gospel of Christ. So every week we're giving a preview to the world of what the kingdom of God looks like by the way we love one another. Your family is to do that at home. The way you love one another, the way you interact with one another is to be a light in this world. As we had earlier, Christine stands before us. Options Pregnancy Clinic is a light in this world, giving us a glimpse in the, in the kingdom. There is no abortion. In the kingdom, there is no suffering. There's no pain. There's no disease. There's no cancer. There's no evil in the world. In the kingdom of heaven. And so as we support ministries like, like Options, we're, we're helping to support the ministry that, that proclaims the gospel of Jesus, that light would go further into this world. As you love your neighbors, as you love those in, in your schools, in your workplaces, you're showing them the light of Christ, that they would say, something's different there. And as you begin to articulate the truth, which is why Christina was up here, and she said, relationship is everything, because they must hear the words of the gospel. They need to know the truth, Acts of compassion are good, but they must be followed with words so they know who Jesus is and will believe in Jesus. So know this. You, if you're a believer in Christ, you're the light of the world. As a church, we're the light of the world. As we support options like, like, or ministries like options that proclaim the gospel for the sake of, of those who are hurting to know Christ, to turn to him, to love him, we're supporting the light of the world going out into this dark world. And what we see is the darkness cannot overcome it. That's number one, healing. Number two, geography. 
Don't, don't miss these words in verses 24 and 25. They're, they're specific. Look what we're told. Verse 24, Jesus' fame spread throughout all Syria. In verse 25, crowds are coming from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan. So, in other words, north, south, east, west. Kind of getting this idea that this king is worthy of all worship from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And we're getting ready for the command at the end of the gospel, which says, go into all the world proclaiming this gospel. Why? Because Revelation says there will be a day coming when people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language will be gathered around the throne because this king is the king of the world who will rule for all of eternity and those who have believed in him and trusted in him will have eternal life with him. And so there is no place and there is no people that do not need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Know this. The light of the gospel is powerful enough to overcome all the darkness in the world. So when you're, when you're thinking about dark places in your neighborhood, in your workplace, or, or in different parts of the world going, man, what, what do they need? Is there anything that can break in there? Yes, there is. It's the gospel. The gospel is needed in every place, and every people group needs to hear the gospel. The darkness cannot overcome the light. The light will overcome the darkness. And we already know the end of the story because Matthew and Revelation gives it to us. Jesus will return. He'll establish his kingdom into the entire world, make a new heaven and new earth. And his glory will abound just as the waters cover the sea. And there will be no evil, no pain, no suffering. And everyone in that world will love Christ and for all of eternity be gathered around him to live for him. And so I just want to close today with really just you considering two things. Number one, will you repent and follow this king? If you've not repented, and to repent means to, to turn away from your sins, to turn away from following and trusting in yourself and anything else, and trusting in Jesus. Repent is a change of directions. I was walking this way, and before Christ, we're all walking this way, east. Pretty sure that's what that is. East. <laughs> no, we're in a building. I'm totally lost at this moment. <laughs> you all know what we mean. You're going in one direction, but when you repent and believe in Jesus, you now turn 180 degrees. You're given a new life. You become light of the world. And now everything we do, our words and our actions, are to glorify him. Will you repent and believe in Jesus? He has come to invite you into the kingdom. The way we enter is through repentance. Repentance and follow him. Trust in Jesus. He is the king and the savior that you need and that this world needs. Now, if you have trusted in Christ, then I ask you, are, are you living an absolute devotion to our king? It's healthy for us to regularly practice repentance, for us to regularly evaluate our lives and, and going, have I fallen into giving Jesus 10%, 15%, 20%, whatever, just marginalizing our call to maybe a few hours or a day or areas of my life? Have we forgotten that Jesus is the supreme king, worthy of all worship? He's come to lay his life down on the cross 
that by his death we would have everlasting life so that with every breath we have, we would live for him. Are you living for the king? I encourage you, if you are here today and you're a believer and you're going, man, there are areas that I haven't been. There are areas that I've been holding back on. There are areas of sin. Maybe it's it's you're thinking about your hobbies, your, your free time. Maybe it's with your language. Maybe there's just various things within there. I encourage you to confess that today. Repent of your sin and know that Jesus gives grace. And he is faithful to forgive us from all of our sins as we confess them and trust in him. So I encourage you, confess any sins that you have, believe in him, and let us live each day for this king, the light of the world, the one who has come to rescue us from darkness, that we would know him and share this hope, the hope of Jesus, the light of the world, so that more and more people would know him and believe in him. We're going to pray, and then we're going to partake of communion today. Uh, and the ushers will come and begin passing that out. But let me pray. Father, Father, we come to you now, and we thank you for the sending of your son. Because of sin, we've rebelled against you. Because of sin, we've disobeyed you. Because of sin, we have trusted in, in just about everything else other than you. We've worshiped creation rather than the creator. This world is dark. It's rebellious, and yet you sent your son that he would break into the darkness, pushing it back and giving hope, and he is that hope. He went to the cross that he would pay the price, the penalty of our sins, so that if we trust in him, we would be forgiven, we'd be given everlasting life, and we would live with you forever. May we know that. And Lord, I pray that everyone here would know that. And if we've trusted in you, then we would know that right now, because Jesus is light and we've trusted in him, he dwells within us, that he would strengthen us, that we'd obey him, and we would now also be light in this world, that through our actions and through our words, we would tell others about him. God, make us a bold, bold people, not because we're strong, but because you give us grace and that we would tell of you to everyone we know. We would tell those to the students in our schools, to those whom we work with, to our neighbors, to everyone we encounter, that they would see the hope of Jesus through the way we speak and through the actions that we take. And Lord, I pray that our families, our church, the ministries that we support would be light in this world, revealing to this world the hope that we have in your son, Jesus. Father, we praise you in your name. Amen.